you have your uh, Bible, but you can go ahead and turn to the book of Jeremiah. You can go to the middle of your Bible, to about right at the middle, depending on how many maps you have. Uh, it might be a little bit more to the left or to the right. Since they have the microphone in duck mode, so, we hope that's as close as I get to speaking in tongues this morning. I promise you that's as close as you'll get to understanding it. Um, well, we're going to be in Jeremiah. Let me set up kind of where we're going, uh, not just this morning, but over the next couple of months. Uh, Pastor Charlie will be continuing the series in Matthew, uh, while I'll be beginning the series when I'm in the pulpit in Zechariah. Uh, so the, uh, we'll, we'll talk about how Zechariah fits in. That said, uh, Zechariah is a lot to just jump into, so this morning is what you might call a gateway sermon um, to try to get us to Zechariah. So we're going to spend a little bit more time in background this morning than normal uh, so that we can uh, split some of it up so that when we get to Zechariah we don't have to spend as much time. That's where we are. We're in Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to only be looking at a couple of verses together. Verses 9 through 13. And read Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9, all the way to verse 13 together. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will for cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, return to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water and feared dug out systems for themselves, broken systems that cannot hold water. Father, I pray this morning that these words that were written well over 25 centuries ago by a desert tribesman far on the other side of the world. Lord, I pray that because these words were not His words, but because these words were Your words, that these words this morning will push our hearts. Lord, we believe in the audacious claim that all Scripture is given by You, and therefore it is all true. And as such, Father, we believe and help us to believe this morning 
that these words are desperately needed by our own hearts. More than lunch, more than plans for next week, more than plans for this afternoon, more than a nap, more than anything that's on our minds. These words are needed for our soul. And so, Father, I pray that in this time you would grant grace that we would have attention to abide in your word. I pray, Father, that by your spirit you would move our hearts to accept your word. Walk all these things to you. Amen. So before we begin, I want to read to you two thoughts that I think greatly sum up this message um, that were written across the ages by believers. Uh, one comes from the church father, Augustine. Uh, we actually talked about Augustine, and I think we actually read this quote together in our church history class. Probably the most famous quote of Augustine. He writes in his confessions in the very first paragraph, praying to the Lord, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And then from a Puritan, I don't even know which Puritan prayed this, it's just in a collection of Puritan prayers, but a Puritan says this, and I find this so helpful. Teach me to believe that if ever I would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it. Listen, teach me to believe that if ever I would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must invite Christ to abide in place of it, and He must become to me more than the vile sin has been. And this is exactly what's going on in Jeremiah chapter 2. I think that's exactly what our hearts are in need of. So Jeremiah chapter 2, um, our text comes to us from the book of Jeremiah. It's named after the prophet Jeremiah. The Old Testament is divided into 39 different books. And inside those 39 books, we divide those into four sections. The first five books are what we would consider the law. Sometimes we call it the Torah, um, which, which means law or ways, and sometimes we call it the Pentateuch, which just means the five books. The next 12 books, this is how your Old Testament is divided. So if you open up the Bible, you're going to get the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's really important that you realize it is not chronological. Yes, Genesis is the beginning, but if you keep on reading through, you'll find out that stuff that comes after in the Old Testament actually happened before. It's because of how it's divided. So it's put in sections. First we have the law. That's the first five books. And then we get the full history of the Old Testament. So they group all the full history of what happened right after that in 12 books that we call the historic books. Then after the historic books, we get five more books. 
those are often called the poetic books. So you're thinking of Psalms and Proverbs. They come after it. And after that, the very last section of the Old Testament is a group of 17 books we call the prophets. And those 17 books are talking about things that happen in the historic books. So you've got those 12 books that tell you what happened, and then 17 are how the Lord was interacting with His people during that time. Of those 17 prophetic books, five are quite long, twelve are quite short. The ones that are quite long, we call the major prophets. Not because they're any more important, but simply so it's a way of saying the long ones. So there are five long ones. Jeremiah is a major prophet. He's one of the five long books. When we look at Zechariah um, very soon, we will be looking at a short book, a minor prophet. That's what Zechariah is. So, one of the other things that I think is real helpful when you're looking at something like this is go ahead and admit up front. It's not simple to understand. That's fine. Admit that. When you open up this book, it's not simple to understand. Why? Well, first, Jeremiah is a prophet. That word simply means he's an advocate, a spokesman for God. Well, on the face of it, you wouldn't expect to read something coming from God and us as humans fully get all of it right off the top. Right? And if you were reading something by Albert Einstein, who I think most of us would say was a pretty smart guy, you wouldn't expect to understand everything he writes. Well, Albert Einstein is a moron compared to God. And so you can't un- expect to read everything that God has to say and expect it and understand it right off the top. Second, it's a very different cultural setting. Jeremiah lived, Texas, 25 centuries ago, and he lived on the other side of the world in the east, and guess what? A lot has changed in 25 years, especially if you now live in the west compared to in the east, where it has changed, but not nearly as much as it has been. And the last thing that makes it tough about this particular chapter is Jeremiah is dealing with the nation in the midst of a major transition. So, so let's talk about what happened. Just real quickly, an overview of the Old Testament for you. In the beginning, God created. You get that in Genesis, right? God created man. He created man so that man would dwell content, safe, and at peace with God. That's how we were created. Only a few paragraphs into the biblical narrative. You don't have to go far at all and you find out that man has rejected the opportunity to live with God in this way and therefore rejected God's offer of peace and joy and contentment. And yet God does not leave man fully abandoned. Instead, He chooses for Himself a nation and first choosing a man named Abraham. Now Abraham, it's interesting, Abraham lived down in what would later become Babylon. So if you have what's later going to be Israel here, down here is Babylon, more like over here, um, which is where uh, modern day Iraq would be. That's where Abraham was. So somewhere around 1800 BC, God calls Abraham and says, I want you to leave everything you have um, and I want you to pack up your family and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to promise you. Fast forward a couple years later to around somewhere around 1400 BC, 
God promised Abraham that he would give him his a lot of children and his children a lot of children. You find this nation, the people who are now born under Abraham, now called the people of Israel, the Israelites, you find them living in Egypt, and to put it lightly, their folks were multiplying like crazy. Um, and the exact promise of God was coming true. I mean, they were multiplying like wild. And so there's this huge group of people, but they're now slaves. And so God takes that group of people and he moves them out of Egypt. So, just real quick again, if you've got Babylon over here, you've got Egypt down here, you've got Israel up here. God took Abraham, took him, said this is the promised land, the people get enslaved in Egypt, they never actually lived in the promised land, and now he calls them out, where do you think he's calling them to go to? Canaan. That's the name of that promised land, the land of Canaan. He's calling them to go there. And sure enough, after about um, a half a century and a half a book, or a half a dozen books later, we find that the people actually go into the land. And when they, they go into the land, they relocate the current residents. And fast forward even faster, and we get the first king, a guy by the name of Saul. Saul thinks. Um, and so then we get a good king in David. Um, and David has a son named Solomon. So now all the people of Israel, or what at this point what we call the united monarchy, that is the whole nation is under one king. That lasts for three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and no more. At that point, the nation divides, it deteriorates, the kingdom deteriorates after Solomon, and it divides into the north, that's what we would call Israel, and the south, what we call Judah. All the fun stuff in this area, that that place where God promises with his people, the land of Canaan. Now, the nation of Israel, the northern tribe, they reject God over and over and over. Finally, in 722 B.C., you've got Israel here, you've got an, near where Babylon is, you've got an empire fastly growing, the empire named Assyria. God tells the nation of Israel through three prophets. The nation of Israel, the 17 prophets, the nation of Israel only gets three, uh, Jonah, Amos, and uh, um, Hosea. He gets those three, those three are talking to the nation of Israel, and God, through those three men, tells the nation of Israel, if you do not change, I will ruin you. In fact, just for the record here, if you remember, Jonah is called to what city? Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of where? Assyria. So you can see the nation of, of, of the empire of, of Assyria is fastly growing. That's why God sends them there. But sure enough, in 722 B.C., God uses the nation of, his, of Assyria to judge the Israelites and wipe them out. So now left in the land is only the small southern nation of Judah. Judah, like Israel, also rejects God. God warns them that if they don't follow him, they will face a similar fate of Israel. And in 586 B.C., God finally does exactly what he promised he will do. And he 
wiped them out by nation, an empire called Babylon. And so in 5863, one of the saddest moments of the Old Testament, we read about the people of God in this promised land making a trek, and they're going back to Babylon. Exactly what God called them out of. It's a pretty strong deal when you think about it. Jeremiah is writing right at that time. In fact, Jeremiah is interesting because we divide those 14 prophets who, who, who uh, minister to Judah. We divide them into three groups. We say, were they writing before Israelites? Deported to Babylon? Were they writing during the time they were deported? Or deported? Or did, are they writing afterwards? Jeremiah actually spans two of those. He is writing both during and before they go. And this text that we find ourselves this morning is before they go. So if we land in Jeremiah, we know the audience is the nation of Judah, who is on the verge of destruction. And here's what's interesting. In the second chapter of Jeremiah, God explains to us why. Now, that's very interesting because, first of all, as human beings, we are never owed any explanation of God about anything. So, any time that God is gracious enough to explain himself, we should be very interested to find out. And that's exactly what we see. Let's just take a look at this text before I think it would be helpful for you to know that two cities, one is Cyprus, so you've got Israel here, the Mediterranean Sea here, right off the coast to the west is a, an island called Cyprus. It's still there today, still a nation today. Uh, that's on the far west. And then over to the far south, and almost southeast, there is a, a city called Kedar. Um, some folks think it's actually still the same place as now is the modern nation of Qatar, uh, which would be near Saudi Arabia. And so, far west you have Cyprus, far east you have Qatar, and Israel is in the middle. You're saying, why do I care about all that? Well, I think you're going to need that to understand what the Lord is contending. Uh, verse 9, Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. This language of contending to the language of lawsuit. He's saying, I'm drawing up a lawsuit. And I will bring it against you, and I will bring it against your children's children. He says, across the coast of Cyprus and sea. So go across the coast and get to Cyprus because it's an island and see. And send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? So what is God saying? Well, God is saying, look as far as you want to the west. Look as far as you want to the east. In other words, examine the whole world and tell me if you have seen what is happening here. In fact, 
God asked this question. Of all those nations who serve God, who aren't God, can you tell me of any of them who are given those gods up? There's an implied answer of no. <laughs> There's an implied answer of no. They're not abandoning their God. Verse 12. Be called to heaven. Again, be hot, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. God then calls to the heavens as his witness and says, O heaven, you must be shocked by this. And he actually uses language, you must be ruined by this. This is so crazy. What is it? Now, here's what it is that you think is so crazy. He says, My people, verse 13, have committed two evils. Notice, he's explaining to us how there are people leaving by force from the promised land of Canaan where they were to have everything they needed. And taking the trip all the way back to the great, 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 and he going, Grandfather Abraham came from. He's explaining why this is happening. Because they committed two evils. The first and foremost of these two lists, they have forsaken me the fountain of living water and put out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says that not only have the people forsaken him, but they did so in exchange for cisterns, where cisterns would have been a container of water, or sometimes they'd actually dig into the earth and, and plaster it with, or dig into the limestone and then plaster it so it could hold water for them. Large containers. And he describes those containers for us. He says that they are broken, they can't hold water. In other words, my people have rejected me the fountain of living water for, in exchange, a bunch of leaky buckets. They have exchanged me for something far, far less desirable. For what things? What things do the people do that would be characterized as exchanging God the leaky bucket. But for starters, they worship false gods. They get answers to Baal, Molech, Asherah, the female version of Baal, and others. And then instead of getting help from these gods, they got Marxism. They were leaky buckets. Because Judah also made treaties with foreign nations over and over and over. And the help rarely came. They were leaky buckets. The people of Judah oppressed their own people to get richer and richer. The very thing God had set law up after law up to dissuade. Now the rich were getting richer. They were leaky buckets. God claims His people were trying to quench their first. 
have drinking from leaky containers holding old, dirty water. That's foolish enough. It would be very foolish for any one of us out in the heat of yesterday having to do a lot of work and setting beside us a bucket of dirty, stagnant water. All the while knowing the bucket has a leak and expecting that to sustain us. It was a whole lot more foolish when you realize they had a choice of a fountain of running water. Okay? Let's examine. I want you to first notice the people did not simply reject God. They tried to replace God. Why? Now just look at the heart of the human condition. Every one of us, each and every one of us is thirsty. Each and every one of us is looking for something and someone to fill a deep longing in our thirsty souls. And if that's the way that the nation of Israel did it, what about us? Do we do this? What about materialism? Certainly we do it. I don't know about you, but I'm often shocked at how much I love stuff. I would love to tell you I don't love stuff. I like to convince myself that I don't love stuff. And I'm amazed at how much I love stuff. I'll never forget one day taking a business trip and turning on the television and there was um, a shopping channel. Heather and I don't get cable and so I, uh, we don't see shopping channels. Somehow on the shopping channel, a hammock that you could put in your backyard and there was one that you could break up and and uh, sit up and break down real easily. And they showed all these people. I had my cell phone out and I was dialing the number for this hammock and this rush of what are you doing? You would never use a hammock. You hate being outside for long periods of time without a purpose. We love comfort. We love ease. We love new things. Let me have Something new. I promise you, much of that is a built-in thirst that we're trying to fill. Pride. It actually defines pride in such a way that doesn't make us so guilty of it often. We define it in such an obscure way that surely none of us would be guilty of pride. And yet, if you take a real simple definition, it's something like a desire to be desired. Oh man, are we exposed? You want to be the parent that kids like. You want to be the grandparent that everybody likes. You want to be the young person who is cool, adored, and together. We want to be the husband that everybody that our wife friends like. We want to be the wife that our husband's friends think is cool. We want to be the singer, the teacher, the leader that everybody talks about. Very well. The thirsty souls are showing themselves for what they are. There's many other leaky buckets. There's sinful desires of the flesh. We often try to make these sound cleaner and more secure than they are with restrictions like comfort food. As we said, controlled drug use. A new description I read this week that just shocked me. The legal, civil, classy 
Legal civil classing pornographic material. Really? There is such a thing as civil classing pornographic material. Really? Our thirsty souls are saved. And all we're trying to do is put cake on a bucket and make the water not look so good. We could go on and on. The point is that we don't have to work hard to identify the nation of Israel. One of my prayers this week for you to have was then, Lord, I pray that you would expose to them areas of their lives that are leaking toxic. I pray that you would show them areas that do not honor you and you would motivate them to change with attitude, actions, and desires. All right. Hey, but that's only a small part. If you're thinking, Tim, so what you're trying to tell us is Judah did these things they shouldn't have done, and we also do some of the things that we shouldn't have done, and he got Judah knocked out, and therefore we should be careful not to get knocked out so we should stop doing those things. I got it. Please keep listening if that's what you think the sermon is about. That is not what the sermon is about. Let us recall that Judah committed two evils. Turning the leaky pockets was only one of them. The other evil committed was rejecting the fount of living waters. They rejected God. Now, I promise you, stay real close with me. We're getting to the heart of this sermon. Judah turned the leaky buckets only after they rejected the fountain of living waters. Only after they rejected God. For something much bigger is at play here. I tell you, the story of the gospel is at play. See, we were created. Every one of us was created. Hear this. Thirsty by design. We were created thirsty creatures by design. This is a thirst that can only be quenched by God Himself. And God created us so that we would be thirsty. We would find God near and close to us in the garden and we would drink of Him and be completely filled and rejoice. We call that giving glory to God or glorifying God. That's how you were formed. Give you a text here. Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7, also a major prophet writing about the same time as Jeremiah. My son, bring my son from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, listen, who I created for my glory whom I formed and made. The fall is the story of man rejecting this fount of living water as it's set up in the garden. This is the story of all unbelieving man. He's thirsty and he's trying to fill his thirst. So every one of us in this room has been affected by this fall. God is justifiably angry because we have objectively done what is incredibly wicked. We've turned our backs on God and turned to that which does not satisfy. 
God is set to judge us. God given us eternity with the very thing that we have chosen to exist in a consistent state of first void of any quint. And now let's talk about the goodness. The gospel. There's the redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who willingly stood in as a substitute for us. We're on the cross. He bore the Father's anger over our sins on our behalf. He paid our debt for rejecting God and has freed us, Romans 8, from the power of sin so that we no longer have to try to quench our thirst by drinking from leaky buckets no more. So all of us who are in Christ are free to stop drinking from leaky buckets. And some of us here need to hear that. You, brother or sister, whatever leaky bucket it is, if it's pride, if it's too much or an over-focus on yourself, self-centeredness, if it's materialism, if it's covetousness, if it's lust, is it an addicted drug use? Can I tell you in Christ you're free from that leaky bucket? You do not have to go back to it to satisfy your soul. Stay with me. We've been doing this. I'm telling you we're getting at the heart. Christ freed us from leaky buckets. Please listen to this. He did not free us from the dangerous duty of thirst. Christ freed us from leaky buckets, but he did not free us from the dangerous duty of thirst. Christ did not free us from being thirsty. Please hear this. I think this is way misunderstood in our Christian life. Christians have not been freed from thirst precisely because God is good and He loves us. Now, if you get what I'm saying, you're going to probably come to this point here, and it's a fair question. So, Tim, let me get this right. Let's just take a new believer. You're telling me that in the fall, God separated Himself the fount of living water in such a way that no man can ever reach Him. That's correct. But you're also telling me that now, because of Christ, this, this new believer does not have to try to drink from these leaky buckets anymore. That he used to spend all of his life drinking. Because, side note, the life of an unbeliever is the life of leaky buckets. That's all it is. So you're telling me that now Christ has made it where he doesn't have to go to leaky buckets. But he's here. Can you tell me Christ is still leaving them thirsty? It seems wrong. Why not just take his thirst from him? Exactly what I want you to ask. Namely, why? Maybe ask it. But still, this is very important. I think this is how so many of us live the Christian life. I think many of us live this way. 
I've been saved from that. And so now what I must do is do my best to no longer sin. And what is though we can't drink from the fountains of sin, so we should just sit and do our best to not think about water. But that is not what God wants. Why? Because the gospel says when we could not go to the fountain of living waters, He came to us. Jesus is the fountain of living waters. And Jesus is all we want and listen. Jesus can quench your and my thirst. How do I know that? That's what Jeremiah is about. How do I know that? Because about 580 years later, something like that, Jesus will be standing in the same city as Jeremiah. Jesus, our Lord, will be looking at the peace of the people. And in John 7, it says that Jesus stands up and cries out. The text doesn't say things like this often. So Jesus stands up and cries out these words, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, Is anyone first? Is anybody first? And Christ answered him, Second brother, Let him come to me and drink. Hear that. He did not say, Let him first no more. He said, let him come to me and Jesus stands up, cries this out. Why? Because his death doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin. He does not want us to simply not drink from sinful sources. Instead, He wants us to turn to Him and drink. And this is why He did not remove our thirst. Because we are to be driven towards Jesus. This is loving. Because Jesus is everything we want is everything we need. So Christian, hear this word this morning. You are not simply saved to no longer sin. You are saved to enjoy God, to rest in Him, and live for Him. You are saved from God, by God, and to God. Young person, if you return from Caswell, it would be a really bad idea for you to simply try to not anymore. That would be a really bad idea. If you do that, you will find yourself thirsty. And all you will do is trade one old leaky bucket for a new leaky bucket. He said you need. God prayed this for you this week. God, I want to see them thirsty and drinking of Christ. 
So you're saying to yourself, Tim, that, that sounds real good. But man, what in the world? <laughs> it's a new. So it's up. If Jesus is the one who raised it, I'm going to let him answer. Verse 38, Jesus still talking to the crowd, says, Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He just talked about drinking, and now he tells us how we drink, namely, we believe. And from this belief comes rivers of living water. So the drink is to believe. I know this probably doesn't sound that much more helpful to you, okay? So now I believe. There is, and please realize Jesus is talking about belief in the present tense, not the past tense. He's not saying you must have believed. He is saying you believe. That's drinking. It's the present tense verb. What I'm trying to say is, you don't just take one big gulp of Jesus and go on forever. You gotta walk an hour one time, or have an emotional experience at a camp one time, and drink of that, and that's gonna satisfy your soul. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about believe in the present tense, and keep on believing, so that we consciously make the aim of our life to believe in Jesus. Because he's in our, our all in all, so we make him our all in all. He said that his name is to be carried to the nations, so we make it our aim to carry his name to the nations. He says that if we care for him, we'll love the broken and the poor, so we do what we can to love the broken and the poor. It's the process of taking our lives and arranging them so Jesus is at the center of the orbit. Young person, I know, I keep coming back to the youth and they're saying, why, man? <laughs> because I, I truly believe for you, a sermon after Caswell is much more important than a sermon before. Let me give you a tough challenge. Man, this is real tough. Sometime before the end of the day, it's possible. You're not going to like me for this. Ask your parents two questions. Mom or Dad, you know me very well. I told you wouldn't like this. You knew you had to like it when I started with Mom and Dad. <laughs> Does my life orbit around me? Does my orbit, my life orbit around Jesus? Now, this is not just something for the young adults. I'm going to really make us all mad. But your assignment with your spouse sometime today. I've told you it wasn't going to be fun. The Scott is given to you to sanctify you. Not just in patience, <laughs> but objectively. Ask yourself this question. You might want to start with sweetheart or honey or something like that. You know me very well. When you see me, does my life orbit around me? Does my life orbit around Jesus? Young person, I beg you to do that, and I beg you to take it to heart. I truly believe there is much life there. Jesus says in verse 39, now, he, or John explains to us what Jesus has said. He says this, he says, now he said this about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet as the Spirit had not been given to him, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We know the Spirit comes in Acts 2 and Pentecost. So Jesus is giving us a little bit more help here. He's, by through John's words, he's telling us that the Spirit is given to help us drink. So the Spirit uses many things to do that. He uses regular scripture reading, he uses prayer, he uses church community, he uses accountability, and you can go on those other things. He uses that to help us believe. And let me emphasize this, those are not the point. Those are not the end. Those are only the means to the end. When Jesus becomes the center of your, your, your orbit, you use those things. You treat those things like tools in a woodshed. You don't go to your woodshed. You don't buy a hammer to say, I've got a glorious hammer. You buy a hammer to use it to build something. That's what prayer and, and scripture reading and church attendance are. They are tools in your toolbox. So then you by the Spirit of God to help you believe. Only then will we find joy, peace, and comfort in life. Because only then will our thirst be quenched. Notice that when this happens, you become a fountain yourself. It says, up in you rises rivers. So that now you don't simply get your thirst quenched, but you become a thirst-quenching agent for others. This is not a one-sermon truth. I pray by God's grace I have many more times in my life to preach this sermon because this sermon is preached by me to me often. It's one that you're going to have to hear. We're going to have to hear again and again. Jesus is not simply our ticket to heaven. He is heaven. We read those last quotes as we close. Now, with all that in mind, here at Justin, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, to yourself, and our heart is restless. You can put here thirsty. Our heart is restless but thirsty until the rest is quenched by you. Children, teach me to believe that if ever I would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must invite Christ to abide in place of it. And he must become more to me than that vile sin has ever been. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if your word has encountered our ears this morning, that it would encounter our minds. Father, I pray that if it encounters our minds, by your spirit, it would encounter our hearts. And Lord, I pray for courage for men and women to be willing to ask the tough questions.
What's the center of my orbit? Is it me? Or is it Jesus? Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word for the furthering of your kingdom. Amen.